NZ Aerosports, Icarus Canopies, now Gyro. That's right, we've rebranded, and Gyro is our next generation. It honours our founder, as that's the name we knew him by, but Gyro also marks the start of a new chapter. And not to be biased, but it's going to be fucking epic. Long story short, we're more us than ever. So if you're new to the sport, or even a Sky God Ninja Turtle, welcome. I think our valiant leader Lucy, Gyro's daughter, Says it best. And we still got that fuck your attitude. <laughs> Rebrand! Woo! Rebrand woo indeed, Lucy. Anyway, head over to gyro.com for more info and get amongst your legends. I was 19, broke, unemployed, and sold my girlfriend's canopy for drug money. So, I thought I'd better sell her a new one. What a sentence and what a story. This describes the humble yet outrageous beginnings of NZ Aerosports, the home of Icarus Canopies, in the words of our founder himself. From getting a paratrooper toy from his mom, watching parachutes at the DZ as a six-year-old, jumping off the wharf with a parachute made from bedsheets, doing his first jump at 16, sewing his first canopy on a borrowed machine at 19, and starting to sell parachutes out of a garage in 1986, Paul Gyro Martin had an undying love for the sky. Our company started with one man with the wildest of spirits in a true blue sky dream, a renegade. In the time that Gyro created and ran the Icarus Canopies brand until he passed away in 2017, he pushed everything he had to its limits. We miss him and we always will. Gyro is the next generation of NZ Aerosports. It honors our founder, of course, because it was the name we all knew him by, but Gyro the rebrand also marks the start of a new chapter, our next jump. Gyro is the space between sound and silence, art and science, chaos and calm. Gyro is a state of epic tranquility that transcends understanding. That moment, in the door, in free fall, mid-swoop, where nothing but the present exists. A perfect balance of euphoria and thrill. Gyro captures our passion for flying and our commitment to designing break-the-fucking-rules canopies that deliver pilots pure, wild flight. Coming straight from the cockpit, it's another episode of Lunatic Fringe with the fucking pilot. Ready, set, go! All right, back in the can for another edition of Lunatic Fringe Into the Void, brought to you by the magic of the internet, and straight to another fantastic athlete I want to get into it with. So tell me, who the fuck are you, and what do you do? Hey, my name is Julian Pillman. Um, I'm French, and I'm responsible for R&D uh, at NZ Aerosports. Nice, nice. So Frenchmen, uh, God, they've got quite the uh, uh, the epic crew from everywhere. I know you've got people from Finland, people from um, uh, from now from France as well, from New Zealand, from the states. That's a pretty cool uh, environment, yeah. Yeah, um, I think it's a bit um, representative of what New Zealand is as well. Um, there are people from everywhere there, and um, especially in the company um, through the 
the factory we have i don't know maybe a dozen nationalities we have all the main religions represented <laughs> we have a bit of everything and uh, i'm glad to say it seems to work pretty well on everyday basis and it's, it's pretty cool to be part of well it seems uh, pretty well representative of the sport as well i mean that's kind of skydiving in a nutshell isn't it pretty much people from everywhere just kind of getting together and doing something that they love yeah for sure for sure it's uh, the same spirit i would say it's even broader than skydiving because skydiving um if you look at a map they are big part of the of the globe that are not represented enough uh, just yet and so so it's a bit broader than this but the same spirit for sure that's very cool so um as i usually do on the podcast i'll get you to jump back all the way to the beginning um is first off is skydiving your first extreme sport and how did you get into what the mainstream considers an extreme sport um, yeah, I don't think I'm, I'm really doing any other extreme sports or I've done in the past. Um, I've, I've went through a lot of different sports from windsurfing, uh, skiing, uh, climbing, um, ocean swimming, but I don't think any of them is, is really considered extreme. Well, I suppose that depends um, on who you ask, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> and... As for skydiving, I started, um, I think the, the brother of my girlfriend at the time when I was 17 took me for a tandem. He was skydiver himself in the, in the army and uh, as a fan jumper as well. And it must have been for my birthday, so maybe my 18th birthday, not sure anymore. Hmm. And then I loved it like, like many of us uh, did. I was a bit too young, didn't have the money to to do anything uh, with this. But when I when I picked my engineering school um, a few years later, I picked one that was subsidizing skydiving. So first thing I did is I managed to to be president or responsible of the skydiving club in the school. Oh wow! Um, and then. Oh, it's just an admin work and it's, it's not much. It didn't mean much, but it gave me the opportunity to to jump much more than the subsidy was allowing for. Mm. Um, we were playing a bit with numbers and people who were giving up, we were writing them down as uh, still active. So we were taking their subsidies and <laughs> and just like this, I jumped for a few years for... I think it was nine euros uh, for a jump, which for a student is really a game changer. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, it's a time of your life where you don't have much of money. And if you can have a lot of fun for a reasonable price, uh, well, you you give it all. So I, I like how you just very um, politically correctly said that you basically embezzled your way into skydiving. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good, I'm, man. I'm sure, I'm sure most of us had to find ways. It's an expensive sport, but also a really addictive one. So oh, I'm dude, sure there are a lot of people who did a lot of weird shit to keep I, jumping. I was a fucking stripper. See? <laughs> I, was a, I was a Las Vegas stripper for many, many years to, to pay for my time in the sport. So, hey, I, I'm right there with you. 
Now, <laughs> you said uh, um, a boyfriend uh, of your your sister or some someone brought you out to make that first jump, but was it something that you had thought of before or was it just kind of a, hey, we're going to go do this, do you want to tag along? Um, honestly, don't really remember, but um, I guess I was fascinated by him being a skydiver. Mm. And by the video, he, he probably showed us and... So, yeah, I think I had this, um, I really wanted to do it anyway, but uh, as most of us, I think I, I thought about doing it once and that's something you need to, to do in your life, you know? Sure. Not, I didn't expect it to be such a big part of my identity now. Well, yeah, I um, mean, uh, you were in school finding, shall we say, creative ways to finance your skydiving career, at what point did it click and you're like, all right, I'm going to school to study these things, but my heart's not in it? Or was that what happened? Well, fortunately, what I was studying was aeronautical engineering. So, um, <laughs> so you're a rocket scientist. I, there was a, the, yeah, more or less. <laughs> 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 but yeah, I wasn't that actually, um, attracted that much Um towards space or also was finding a bit unfortunate that a lot of the jobs were in the military, which uh, I was not really attracted to neither. Mm. And so, I don't know, I guess I, I tried to find other, other ways to use the skills I was learning, um, but it didn't come as straight away. Mm. I there were a few few different steps and a lot of chance for this to happen, I guess. So you're you're in school getting your your aeronautical degree, and you're yes. you're skydiving and flying parachutes and stuff. So at what point do you are you going to school and looking up at the cloth wing above your head and starting to put this practical knowledge you're learning in college and look up and go, hey, <laughs> I kind of see what's <laughs> going on here. Well, they. There were a few internships that we had to do at school, and I, if I remember well, there was one um, like the second year, and it was just for summer. And I tried to to apply um, with few different manufacturers. Mm. Uh, I remember sending um, my resume to to PD, for example, but never got any answers. So um, so I left that on the side for a while. And it's more at the end of my of my studies. I, I did an internship in sail design um, uh, in Auckland, in New Zealand. Mm. So yeah, I kind of gave up on working in the skydiving world at this point. I was really happy to to be in the sailing industry, uh, which is also really exciting. Sure. And then. I wanted to stay a bit longer in New Zealand because uh, my internship was during the winter. And after spending six months in more or less winter in New Zealand, I still had six months visa. So I really wanted to stay longer to enjoy the summer and to, to see a bit more. So I was really looking for a job um, just to, to spend a few months. Mm. And I've heard in the sailing industry, someone talking about this parachute manufacturer that was in Auckland and that I didn't know of, actually. I knew the brand, I think, at the time, but I had no idea it was in New Zealand and just next to me at this point. So um, I, I gave them a call 
um, I think every day for like a week. <laughs> and then they were telling me, I just wanted to visit the factory. I was just curious. Um, I wasn't really thinking uh, at a job or anything at this point. And so I was calling them every day and they were always telling me, yeah, you can come visit, but maybe tomorrow it's going to be better. And I, was, I kept calling and calling. And at some point, they, I guess they gave up a little bit. They said, yeah, yeah, come come now. And um, I think they wanted Jaro to be around. Yeah. Um, so Jaro, I don't know if everybody has heard of him. He, he was the founder of Enzero Sports mm. and passed, passed away a few, few years ago now. And he was really passionate man, man. So I guess they wanted him to be around um, when I, I, I was coming to visit. Mm. And so I finally did, and it was really cool. Like Jaro talked to me for a few hours. I was the one curious at first, but then I ended up talking about myself more than learning anything about parachutes. Sure. Because that's that's who Jaro was. He was really <laughs> questioning. Um, well, not questioning, asking questions to to everyone, thinking that they 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 all have something to to teach him. Sure. Or uh, so yeah, I ended up showing all the softwares I was using and everything I was doing during my internship and all that, and he was quite interested. So well, now there's a there's a lot of parallels in um, sailing and skydiving in regard to the technology and the design of the the. Um, the sails that they're using and these foils that they use now. And I mean, a lot of that kind of goes hand in hand, doesn't it? Yeah. All of this is linked. Like if you look at a sail, uh, a foil, a wing on a plane, a parachute, they're all, um, all pretty much the same. It's just a shape that creates some lifts that we use in different ways. Sure. And, it was actually, it's funny, in New Zealand, uh, I was lucky enough to spend um, a season, a winter in the States, um, a summer over there, jumping in Paihia, uh, in the Bay of Islands, uh, when they were still landing on the beach there. And it was, of course, the perfect place to meet people that did all the sailing stuff. The sailing club is just right there. And uh, um, we became really good friends with people that had come and jumped with us. And we got invited to do these Friday evening um, sailing races back and forth. And I had zero experience with sailing. I had no idea mm -hmm. what was going on. And to be honest, I got on it thinking, eh, this isn't going to be much. And, of course, was blown away because it was so much fun and so it, much more exciting than I ever would have imagined. And then sitting there doing the only thing that they would let me do, which was crack that grinder whenever they'd yell to, you know, tighten it up as much as possible. And I started to see, because they were teaching me, the parallels between what was happening with the sail and what happens with the canopy. And I'm like, oh, shit, okay, this is really fucking cool. Um, and then down the uh, down the line, when I w uh, was told that they were using materials that they'd been using in sails to try and make more rigid wings for skydiving and stuff, it really all kind of seemed to tie together really well. And I'm guessing it's people like you that have done both that are pushing those kind of limits. Um, I I don't know. I don't know everything was that was going on. Um before me or in other companies it's it's sometimes really hard to know what's going on <laughs> uh, it's quite secretive sure um, but but what the, the mix i i think i brought um uh, was more the tools um the tools like the softwares and um 
I don't know. I don't want to say the skills because I didn't know much at the time, if I'm honest. But the the scientific approach, and then we mix it up with Jaro's experience mm. uh, in designing parachutes. And the more the year passed, the more I was understanding parachutes, and I guess he was understanding the tools uh, as well. But now, it's, are you it's, talking it's like really, the, the CAD programs and stuff like this? Yeah, yeah. The CAD program was a big, big step. Um, and for those that forward. don't know what that is, can you explain what the CAD program is and how you how you use it for designing parachutes? Yeah, sure. I I use different programs. Um, so the main one is is called CAD, which is three D design software. So um, in which I I design the shape of the parachute. Um, this is this software is then able to split all the panels to put them flat, which we can export to the cutting table, which um, which cuts the fabric. Hmm. So this is all linked. We go from the three D shape to the to the uh, cutting table um, really smoothly. So from 3D and then back I, to 2D and then back to 3D again when you build the canopy. Yeah, exactly. Ah, cool. Which, which sounds weird, but it's um, actually really, really powerful because um, before that, there were Jaro was designing in 2D. But in 2D, you design each panel individually, but you have no guarantee that they're going to match, mm. that they're going to build the 3D shape that you have in mind. So if you start from the 3D then you explode it in panels, then you rebuild it in reality, um, you end up with the the shape you want, sure. that, uh, the, that you were thinking of. So, so now when you do something like that, uh, when you design something like that with the CAD program, you're able to not just um, visualize it, obviously, but are you able to make that canopy perform in the virtual world so you have a good idea of what's going to happen in the real world? Yes and no. So this is in using other softwares, which I call CFD software, uh, stands for Computational Fluid Dynamics. So this type of software, um, basically like virtual wind tunnel. Um, so you decide how much wind you want, and then you can visualize the airflow around the shape you want. So in my case, parachutes, hmm. and you can visualize um, pressure, so you can see where the lift is created, what the pressure inside, etc., uh, etc. Et wow. So you can, it doesn't say everything about the real world. Um, with the tools, at least I have now, I cannot simulate an opening. I, it's hard to, to know how it's going to turn, how it's going to react to rear risers or things like this, but it gives a really good um, first idea. Sure. And basically, we use it more to discard bad ideas. So we try things, and the ones that don't work, at least we don't waste time building prototypes and anything. But then something that is good in the virtual world is not necessarily good in reality. Sure, sure, as, uh, as some of the stories I've been told tell. <laughs> so now, when, when you started with NZ Aerosports, uh, where were you in your jumping career? Um. I think I had about 200 jumps at the time. Wow. So, <laughs> wow. So, yeah, arriving in this company where everybody has, I don't know how many thousand jumps and they, 
they've been to world meets and they've been test jumping, which for me is like un- unthinkable. Right. And me too. I've never looked inside my parachute and I didn't know there were crossbars in the ribs. I didn't know what a cross brace canopy was. Right. And so I really didn't know much uh, at this time, but I suddenly had a passion for it and I wanted to know more. Now, so you're, you, you start with NZ Aerosports when you started, I'm assuming you're, you're obviously learning on the job. Um, but now with the stuff that you're doing, you're helping design some of the most cutting edge parachutes on the planet. Uh, did you see that coming? I mean, was that a goal you were aiming for, or did you just wake up one morning and go, holy shit, look what I'm doing? <laughs> uh, yeah, more of the second option, really. <laughs> I, at first, at first, so, uh, to go back um, to what I was saying earlier, I, I wanted to ask for a job for the summer. So I asked for a job, that, but they told me I w- they were not interested in, in a designer or anything like this especially just for a few months, it didn't make sense. Mm. So they offered me a job in the factory making line sets. And this was my plan. So from this to seeing Petra beating the world record in distance, which was, I don't know, a year and a half after, Mm. um, or two years, I don't know, whatever. It went super, super fast and I never really expected what was next. Um, Sure. When I started doing line set, I didn't expect to be designing parachutes. When I started designing uh, some shit, I didn't expect it to be a competition wing. And then when we started testing, I didn't expect it to be yet tried uh, in international competition. Sure. I suddenly didn't expect it to win the competitions. Right. So, yeah, yeah, it went really weird. I, I remember Jaro telling me, um, okay, we, we're going to send this prototype to the um, Australian Nationals um, where the pilot uh, was Michael Vaughan. And he told me, well, if he wins, uh, you can have whatever you want. <laughs> and, <laughs> and this is how confident we were not to win because... <laughs> <laughs> And he didn't win, but he arrived second or something. He did. He did. He did a good job. Uh, still, with a prototype that was far from being finished, and and yeah, I think just a few months later we were winning at the international level. I mean, it's so, it's such an incredible story because I mean, I've been jumping for a very long time, and and I'd like to think that I'm a decent canopy pilot, and I fly what um, you know a new timer would consider a crazy. Uh, small parachute, uh, but the the Petra is the one that makes me nervous. Like I'm, I, I watch the guys that are really really good at flying these wings, and they make it look so easy. And then I watch someone that's not so good at flying that wing, and they scare the shit out of me <laughs> because it's such an incredible performing wing. And it, it, to hear that. Um, that just a couple of years before you were, you know, making line sets with no real design towards going that direction is fucking fantastic. But that kind of sums up again, the opportunities that, that come up in skydiving. And one of the coolest things about the varied backgrounds of people that end up in our sport, 
you know, doctors and lawyers and drug dealers and cops and criminals and and uh, um, <laughs> and fucking designers that make some of the baddest wings ever that had no idea. Now, when you were designing that one specifically, but any canopy, are you when the first one's going out the door and the first one's going to be test jumped? Are you there when it's jumping and are you nervous as hell? Because I'd be freaking out if somebody was jumping something I designed. So nowadays I live in Europe. I'm I'm right now in Barcelona, so I don't I'm not on drop zone on all the jumps. But I used to for sure. Uh, I was going. I was usually going in the plane as well, not test jumping, but just to be just to be part of it. And we used to go every Wednesday. I think Wednesday was dedicated to test jumping. And at the time there was no dedicated test jumpers. So it was Attila, who is the general manager. It was friends, it was people on the drop zones. And we're just going to jump uh, all day long uh, on Wednesday. And yeah, yeah, of course, uh, I was I was nervous, but I think I didn't know enough to be to be really nervous. I thought that, yeah, these guys, they know what they're doing. Um, they, it's in their hands. I just provide an idea and they, they deal with it. Sure. Um, right now I know enough to know that nobody knows. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, I, I was lucky enough to be able to talk to both Attila and Chris Stewart who are test jumping the wings that you're designing and which there's no way in hell I could ever do that job. There's just, I don't have the stones for that kind of work. Uh, but w- was there like a company thing that like somebody's buying beer if this shit happens or if that shit happens? I mean, especially because I know so many of the people that work for your company and they're all skydivers and they're all very cool, very down to earth people, no pun intended. Um, you guys must have a shitload of fun with it as well as taking things extremely seriously. So I'd imagine after a good day of test jumping, you guys must best, you got to let your hair down a little bit, I'm sure. Yeah, totally. I think uh, (laughs) these days we're called, uh, Joe was calling it debriefing cocktails. So uh, after when we were coming back from the drop zone, we had a van and it was like uh, with the chili bean full of beer drinking on the way back uh, to the factory. And then usually we're spending the whole evening or night at the factory watching videos sure. and drinking far too much. And yeah, it was really, really cool moment. Really cool moment. So now when the Petro was uh, really being developed and you guys had a good idea of what you had on your hands, um, obviously a lot of it is is uh, coming down to the little itty bitty things but when the petra was first coming out uh, were there a bunch of different designs that ended up becoming the petra or were you guys kind of nailing it right out of the gate um a bit of both i'm i'm right now i'm trying to design the petra 2 and i realize how lucky we've been on the petra 1 <laughs> because it's it, it's a bit hard to do better um, right. well, for me, I'm sure there are many ways to do better, but, uh, I didn't find them yet, but yeah, it's, um, so we, in a way we've been lucky and we, we came up really quickly with something really good, but it was a really special, uh, we were calling the summer of love. So it was what I was talking earlier, like this meeting between the tools, I knew how to, um, how to run and Jaro's ideas, we went crazy. We were pro- 
um, producing prototypes every week, going jumping every every Wednesday, and we we did more prototypes this year than in the 20 years before wow. uh, in the company because Jarrell had all these ideas in his head that he never had the opportunity to to design because he didn't have the tools. And so it was like, yeah, can you try this? Can you try that? And between his ideas and my ideas, we 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 couldn't stop. So we hmm. started this series of prototypes and they were in alphabetical order. So they all had um, a girl's name, uh, porn star name, I'm sure Attila or, or uh, <laughs> Stewie told you. But so we started with Amy, it was um, Barbara, etc etc and so petra is p so this is how many prototypes we've done to reach petra really that's actually the first time i've ever heard how that got that that's awesome so it was you got that many porn stars all the way up to p (laughs) yeah yeah it was part of my job to research the names and the and the icons representing them tough job (laughs) yeah (laughs) tough job well, so now you're not just designing wings like the Petra, although I still want to talk more about that, but you're designing wings for people just starting out in the sport. You're designing wings for the, the mid-level guys. You're designing wings for people like me who still want to have fun under canopy but really don't want to be saddled up onto the Petra because I'm not current enough to be flying something that crazy. You guys are also doing the Kraken as well, and I'm guessing you had something to do with that too. Yeah, actually, I think the Kraken is the latest – um, design we released um, that that I worked on and it's yeah actually designing comp- competition wing is is complex but at least you know what you're looking for exactly mm. you want to win the competition so you have to read you read the rules of the competition and you're like okay I, I think I need a canopy that recovers pretty slowly that's going to glide a lot a lot of power at the at the end of the flare to gain few meters in distance etc etc when you when you start designing intermediate canopy um you're like okay people like it fun okay it's it's much harder to (laughs) to put in numbers and to put in design sure um but in the kraken it was uh, again something different because Usually we design the, the canopy for the way it flies and then we sort out the openings. Uh, we make it open um, nicely afterward. But for the Kraken, the openings were the, the key, were mm. the key points because for wingsuiting, what you want is something that opens reliably, that you trust, uh, that untwists if there is a twist, etc., etc. So it was a whole new world uh, for me to to discover and explore, and it was a really interesting journey. Sure. Um, we we tried a lot of things. We we didn't look that much at what the others were doing at the at the time because we we didn't want to be influenced. You know how this can frame your thoughts. Sure. Um, if, if you if you look too much, but. For example, now I look at, at other wingsuiting canopies and I realize that in some aspect we went the other way completely. Like some other manufacturers went, decided to put the lines, uh, especially long, and to try to get out of the bubble of the wingsuit. But 
we went the other way. We're like, okay, the bubble is 50 meters. Anyway, there's no way we get out of this. Um, so what we want is something that untwists if there's a twist. Hmm. So for this, you need short lines. So we went with short lines. And we experimented with um, with a lot of things like this. And for us, it was really, yeah, really interesting to explore. The vans, sure. the different sliders, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Was... Now, when you're designing something along the lines of the Kraken, obviously your your um, main customer base are skydivers, but now you're venturing into territory where uh, with the advent of the wingsuit and what people are doing with the wingsuit, now you're kind of uh, aiming a little bit towards that base market because people are, you know, the, the top-end wingsuit pilots that are looking for a really good canopy are doing stuff like um, wingsuit base. Um, so are you are you keeping that in mind as well, that it's terrain involved? This is not just skydiving. This is a whole different deal. Um, we have listened to, to a lot of people while we're designing the Kraken, and, and, and most of them are also base jumpers, or a lot of them. Uh, but we didn't really design the canopy for that. It's, sure. it's not to be used for for base jumping, and we try to to also understand what this this base jumper didn't see um, that was different in skydiving. So, for example, we from our experience, uh, we needed canopies that last long enough because base jumper they they're gonna do I don't know. They're going to do a few dozen jumps a year or for the most dedicated, maybe a hundred, but you need to hike up every time. Sure. So, so it takes time. It's something that takes your afternoon to go to a jump. Uh, I'm not a base jumper myself, so I'm not going to pretend to, to know these spots really well, but sure. when you have a plane, you're on the drop zone, you can do eight, 10 jumps a day. You can go every weekend. You can, you can go every season. So you tend to do much more jumps. And so we wanted a canopy that lasts um, long enough, like other oh, canopies, at least 2,000 jumps. When the base jump canopies, they are made out of fabric that is not coated, for example, and that doesn't last as long. Mm. So we tried to add our touch to something that is originally really, um, really close to base jumping, to the base jumping world, but yeah, try to adapt it to, to real skydiving world. Well, and am I mistaken, or the Kraken's also considered a low-pack volume parachute as well? Yeah, no, you're not mistaken. Now, uh, what was the what was the two, mentality behind that? The the idea is that um, for wingsuiting, you want a bigger you want a bigger canopy sure. than normally um, because yeah, it can it can open a bit more weirdly mm. and you don't have your arms free straight away to deal with uh, any shit that can happen so usually wingsuiters they want a bigger canopy but not everyone can afford to have two uh, two set of gear <laughs> so we wanted something that can fit in your free flying uh, container um, but with few extra sizes so uh, the way we achieved that is this is why it took us so long to release uh, the Kraken is because we wanted a canopy that lasts longer, not a base jump canopy, mm. but also we wanted it to pack smaller. So we have explored many, many fabrics and we have tested it in laboratories. We have developed at least 
with with three uh, fabric manufacturers we have developed a fabric that is light but coated with silicone so it's a light zippy it's not a f111 hmm. and then the fabric manufacturer they decided it some of them decided it wasn't worth it they didn't want to do it anymore so they let us down we had to redevelop the fabric with another one etc so it took took us years to get this compromise that we were looking for and i think we succeeded so it was worth the wait for sure (laughs) well for sure well and i know that it's it's been at, at least as i watched stuff like wingsuiting develop it became a what canopy can i get away with doing this um and then obviously it became more and more specific and you'd see people either with multiple rigs or borrowing rigs which i've never been a fan of borrowed rigs so it's nice to see that someone can interchange things back and forth and use uh you know a much bigger canopy than what they might be ordinarily jumping now how much smaller does it pack like what's the normal pack volume for a kraken as compared to a cross brace um Compared to normal canopy, like a non-cross brace, I think it's about 15, 20% smaller. And a cross brace canopy is, is probably about 20% bigger than a crossfire, for wow. example. So the, so the difference between if you jump a layer, for example, and a Kraken, uh, you, you can fit really different sizes of these two canopies in the same container. For sure. Well, that's cool. I mean, I've got a bunch of friends that are doing both. As a matter of fact, uh, I just had on uh, Olga Namova, who's a, a swoop competitor, but her normal day-to-day workhorse is a Leia. Uh, she jumps a Petra for competition, uh, but she's starting to wingsuit, so she needs a Kraken. Uh, so it's crazy. She's got like your whole suite of canopies that she jumps on a relatively regular <laughs> basis, but they all go into the same container, and it's great because she's just got a separate bag and separate risers for each one. And, uh, of course, as long as she doesn't twist them up and do something silly, it's pretty easy to to go back and forth between each of them, which is cool. So now, what? Yeah, what that was to, totally the goal. So, which is awesome. So, so now yeah. you you start working for NZ Aerosports. You start designing these crazy wings. What are you doing as far as as a jumper? Are you uh, fun jumping and and jumping a lot of these wings that you're designing? Um, I'm I'm jumping as much as I can, but I've always try to resist the temptation to to work uh, on the drop zone because it's already my work during the week sure. so when i go to the drop zone i want it to be about about me having fun and and not really um not trying to earn money on the weekends as well so sure. i'm happy I, I i did resist this temptation and and it, it makes the jumping a bit slower, of course. Uh, so I make uh, maybe 100, 150 jumps a year, uh, fun jumping. Uh, but I've done it for, I don't know, 12, 13 years now. So I have um, I have 1,300 jumps. And I'm free flying a lot. I'm not really a good canopy pilot. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm jumping my... <laughs> Dude. Dude. <laughs> I, I again I fall back to how amazing this fucking sport is. The I mean a wing that has put more people on the podium doing the most insane shit was designed with you. Um stuff like the low pack volume to do the wing suiting, the the um median canopies, all this stuff is designed by a, a thirteen hundred jump 
kind of mediocre canopy pilot. That's fucking <laughs> awesome, dude. <laughs> that's that's awesome. <laughs> well, I like free flying a lot. So when I'm on the canopy, I'm happy to just go to the ground. Sure. I have a Crossfire 109, um, Crossfire 3. I, I love it. it gives, um, I'm really happy on the canopy. Sure. I'm happy when it opens and when I land. Um, but yeah, I, I let the swooping uh, to others. Yo, dude, I'm right there with you. I mean, uh, um, I, again, I've been in the sport for 25 years. I got, I don't know, a little over 11,000 jumps, and I'm just an average skydiver, man. No one is ever going to be blown away with my swooping abilities. Nobody's ever going to go, oh, shit, here comes Dean. Let's watch what's happened. No, none of that's going on, and I'm <laughs> fine with that. There's a... Um, and I'm sure you feel the same way. There's a, um, a real legitimate joy in being able to just go out and enjoy jumping with no prerequisite. There's no, I, I don't have any preconceived notions that I'm going to be some badass. And I kind of like that. It's, it's, it's very freeing. No, I'm never, I'm never going to go for a podium. It, it doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, I, I get to just kind of take a deep breath. But for you, it's got to be so rewarding that you get to just kind of hang back and enjoy your time in the sport as a skydiver, but you got to be standing on the landing area and people that don't know who you are come flying by on a canopy that you designed. That's got to be cool. Yeah, I, I really like to go to go and drop zone for sure. Um, it, it's really cool to see the canopies, especially around me in France. There are, there are a lot of uh, our canopies. I'm, I'm not sure how it's going in the US, um, but yeah, it, it, to be on the, on the ground and to see, uh, to hear Leia coming and to, to <laughs> see it swooping, it's, it's really cool. It's a really sure. cool feeling and to see people smiling. Um, but I, I think when you were talking about the podium, um, I mean, it's, it's cool. People want to compete. It's, it's really cool too. But for me, this spot is so cool in itself, like jumping out of a plane, falling at 200 or 300 kilometers an hour toward the ground, uh, the space, the freedom, the fresh air you, you, you can feel. I don't need to compete. Uh, it's a sport I think that is just enough in itself. Sure. Well, no, I feel the same way. And, and it's, I suppose there are some parallels. I, I used to take great pleasure in the fact that uh, being a tandem instructor or a camera flyer, you know, I, I worked in the sport for many, many years doing exactly that, throwing drugs and shooting videos. And on a much smaller scale, I would watch these people walk away from the drop zone with a big smile on their face and, and having had this incredible experience. And even though they're never going to remember my name and they'd never be able to pick me out of a crowd, I got to do something for them that they'll never forget. But you get to kind of do that on, a, on an even larger scale that most people are never going to know who you are. They won't recognize you on the drop zone, but they're getting this incredible experience out of the things that you're helping design. Um, and I'd imagine you've had a, a hand in, um, I mean, the canopies for thousands and thousands of jumpers. Did you do any stuff in regard to the, the uh, tandem canopies? Uh, no, I've, I've never worked in the tandem um, parachute. Well, then I won't thank we, you for all the good openings I've had on their tandem canopies. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that was before my time. Um, I did, I think, only one prototype of a tandem. Um, but then at the time, we didn't have all the proper gear to test it. Now we have sandbags and everything. But at the time, they, did, they were not sure how to test it. Though, so they had me to go as a passenger uh, to to test it. And... 
I don't know. I think I had like 600 jumps at the time and I never got that scared in skydiving. Really to go back to doing a tandem after a few hundred jumps by yourself is really frightening. Oh, it's terrifying. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I was at the door pretending to be, you know, trying to play the, the, the standard passenger being scared, asking for if my goggles, if I could put them and... But you can see on the video, I'm actually not kidding. I'm, yeah, you're not I'm super scared. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I had the same experience, but I was actually a tandem instructor, and I had left Las Vegas to go to work uh, at a place called Skydive Cross Keys that had different equipment. Uh, and uh, I had to do um, a recertification on this new gear, which included an upfront ride. Uh, and by then I had taken probably a couple of thousand tandems and I had to ride on the front of a guy who had never taken a human being on a skydive before. And it was fucking horrible. It was horrible. I couldn't, in the middle of the entire experience, all I could think was I paid somebody money to do this with me a couple of years ago. What was I thinking? Um, So yeah, I'm right there with you. But I also was on a parachute and gear that was tried and tested long before I got to get on it. You had to jump out and ride up front on a canopy you designed. <laughs> Fucking hell, man. <laughs> I didn't even like jumping my own pack job when I learned how to pack. Yeah, this canopy took ages to open. And I remember looking up and you don't have, you're not in control of anything. You cannot no. reach the com- the toggles or anything. And I was like, man, do something, do something about it. Oh, that's <laughs> fucking mental, but you, man. But you can't. Now, all right, so I want to ask a couple of questions. So you said that with uh, uh, canopies like the the competition canopies, you're designing for performance and then tweaking how they open. How how do you tweak an opening on a canopy? I've always wondered that. How do you design an opening? Because although my mind can easily handle the aerodynamics involved in a parachute in flight, I can't wrap my head around the aerodynamics of a parachute that's opening. I mean, I know what the slider does, and I know how the nose works to some degree, but how do you tweak an opening by designing? Um, I guess this part is still more of an art than a science, sure. but there are a um, few parameters you can play with. Uh, we, we're playing with the brake setting. Um, can be deeper or, or shallower. The brake configuration, where you attach the brakes, can influence the opening as well. Then the slider, the and its its shape or size uh, can can also help. And then if none of this works, uh, we go back to the to the initial design, trying to change the the nose, the inlets, the air intake of the of the parachute. So if it if it's not opening fast enough, we can redesign the inlets a bit bigger, play with the size of the crossbots inside the canopy as well. Mm. Well, because I know, especially as an old cameraman, um, I was flying cameras when they were still fucking basically bricks strapped to your head. So having a soft opening was really, really important. But the canopies hadn't quite gotten there yet. You know, I mean, you were still talking about canopies that, you know, one out of every 50 times was going to knock your shoes off. Um, But of course, as an arrogant camera flyer, you assume that the way you pack the parachute is the golden way and you've got this perfect way. But 
I always just kind of assumed it was kind of a bit of a toss of the dice that eventually you're just going to get the shit kicked out of you. Um, but from what I hear, especially in regard to like the Leia and the the Leia specifically is what I've been told has just stellar openings. And I'm assuming that's just design. Yeah, I think what's what's really important, and I realize more and more with the with the years in the sport and um, doing this job, is having a really really good team of testers, um, test jumpers. Sure, they they are the one who are telling me if the opening is is good or not, and if they are good at what they're doing, if they they're demanding as well. Sure, if they if they keep complaining. Um, it pushes us to to do better and better, and to to not to not say like okay this is good enough, um, let's put it on the market. Um, but no, if if they come back to drop zone, always saying no, I think I think we can do better. I think we can do better and keep pushing, then we end up with a great product. There's no other way. Sure. I mean, because especially when you're putting something out for mass production that's going to be used in the way that we use these things, a canopy can't rely on a packing trick to open well. It's got to be able to open pretty consistently, whether it's being, you know, meticulously packed or packed in a big rush. Um, there was always the joke that the trash packs open the best. And and my joke was, yeah, I trash pack it. A, a good soft opening is basically two seconds from a cutaway, <laughs> you know, which is <laughs> probably not the greatest way to look at how you should be opening the parachutes. But it, I, I could never find any rhyme or reason. So you can't just put something out on the market that's going to maybe be okay because not everybody's very meticulous with their packing or, you know, goodness, God forbid uh, you've tossed it on a packing mat with someone who has been slammed all day with pack jobs and they're 10 hours into their shift. You know, I mean, chances are you're going to get a slightly messier pack job. I mean, so please keep designing the living hell out of those openings. (laughs) (laughs) So now, where do you see this all going? Because you said you're working on the Petra 2, uh, and you kind of alluded to this fact in the beginning. Where do you go from there? I mean, fuck. <laughs> How much better is a wing going to get? Well, um, thanks for me, it's a really small industry. So it's not like it's not like the aircraft industry where you have, I don't know, I, I worked for a year for Airbus and you have, I think only in Toulouse, 7,000 engineers working all day Mm. um, on the next aircraft, which is going to happen in in 10 years. This industry uh, is tiny, so I don't know, but there are are a dozen designers and and there's not a lot of money, so we cannot use all the best tools, which means... Um, it's not easy every day, but it also means that there's a lot still to be discovered, sure. uh, to be explored, to be tried. So it's super exciting. It's it's there's like so much so much to to be done, and I'm sure we can we can go much further. Uh, we can we can Man. change the design 
10 more times before getting bored of it. Well, I mean, it's, I, I stopped long ago saying there's nothing left to come uh, because I've even just in my time in the sport, I've seen so many changes, but I've been lucky enough to have conversations with guys like Bill Booth, um, who, you know, have seen it come from the very beginning. And so you hear the stories of the gear that they were flying and army surplus stuff all the way to, you know, now, um, it, I, I have no idea what comes next. And especially with only a dozen or so designers and, you know, obviously you said you guys are pretty secretive <laughs> because you're all trying to come up with the best design. So I'm guessing there's not a lot of uh, collaboration between companies. No, and, and most of them are working in the military, which is by definition really secretive. So it's really hard to know what the others are doing and and. And the biggest companies are actually designing exclusively for the military. Mm. So there's no way to know what they're working on and what tools they're using or anything like this. So we, we have to, to work with what we see. And, and yeah, every time I meet other designers, you know, there's this conversation about we want to share like there's just so many people who are doing uh, this job on the planet. We want to say everything, but we don't want to say too much. And it's really, it's, it's really fun. Usually after a few drinks, everybody talks a lot more and start to, (laughs) to say everything they're, they're working on and they become skydivers. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'd say a few beers at the bonfire, people are going to start to loosen up a little bit. It's got to be, I mean, I'm trying to put myself into your headspace, but it's got to be so rewarding, especially because your part of the industry is so small and and so by its very nature secretive uh, to come up with designs that do so damn well has just, I mean, you've, you've got to be pretty damn proud of the work that you've been able to do with you and your team. And obviously it's not just you, it's a huge team effort um, between you and the designers, the manufacturers, the test jumpers, the whole nine yards. But you still got to feel pretty damn good when you're watching these competitions going on and a wing that you busted your ass on is just shattering records. Um, well, thanks for the kind words. I, <laughs> I do feel really, I do feel really lucky uh, that I was given this opportunity that, um, I got to meet Jaro who was really open, um, really the least arrogant man mm. uh, in the industry and who, who gave me the opportunity to try something. And I think there are, there are thousands and thousands of people who, who could have, uh, design the canopy I design is it's a matter of um, a, a lot of luck, good timing, and meeting some some cool people along the way. So yeah, I feel mainly lucky. Good, good, man. Well, I mean, you're lucky and, and all the people that are enjoying the work that you and uh, um, people like you have done are very lucky that you kind of found your way to that uh, because they're obviously reaping the rewards. Uh, now, speaking of, how do people track down the stuff that you're doing? How are they going to find out where new stuff is coming out? What's the website? What's the um, the um, social media stuff? Where do they go to find out what's coming next? Well, uh, at the moment, I'm only working for NZRO Sports. So um, everything is happening on the on NZROsports.com. Um, this is a great website. We've been working on it for years now. Mm. And we have a blog 
Uh, I think our Facebook page is really active. We have dedicated um, Facebook groups, uh, Kraken Kingdoms for the Kraken pilots, Petra people, Leia lovers, uh, where you can share um, the love and information about the canopies. We have Instagram, we have uh, everything. I'm not communicating myself uh, too much directly, um, but I'm on Facebook. You can find me on Facebook if you want to send me a message or uh, ask me uh, ask me anything. Awesome. You can find me, yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, I'm definitely a big fan of the, the social media and the, uh, the public presence of NZ Aerosports. Obviously, we're working together uh, now as well, and I can't help but love a company that has fuck yeah as their motto. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's uh, uh, it's a very cool company and it's a very cool opportunity to sit down and talk to you and hear about a little bit of the behind the scenes stuff that goes into all the dramatic stuff that we get to see on a daily basis and kind of take for granted on the drop zone. So, man, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to sit down with me and tell me a little bit about your time in the sport. Well, thank you. It was uh, great to meet you, and uh, I really hope we can meet uh, in person and uh, have a beer one day. Yeah, someday. You know, it's a small sport in a small world, so uh, fingers crossed, and hopefully uh, as uh, as COVID hopefully gets more and more under control, that's a, that's a possibility. <laughs> Take care of yourself. Thank you. You too. Well, there you have it. Another episode of the Lunatic Fringe Podcast brought to you as always by, well, wait, not as always, actually. Brought to you now by Gyro. Formerly known as NZ Aerosports, you'll head to gyro.com for their next level line of canopies. By Pussfoot, the Extreme Sports Collective. Head over to pussfoot.com to check it out. By Summit Parachute Systems, Check out SummitParachuteSystems.com to talk to Jarrett Martin and the gang about kick-ass pilot rigs, rigging courses, and more. By FlyAway Indoor Skydiving. Go to FlyAwayTN.com and check out all the cutting-edge stuff to come. By Pure Spectrum CBD. Head to PureSpectrumCBD.com to check out their wide range of CBD products. And as for us, head to the LunaticFringePodcast.com to listen to any of the hundreds of episodes currently available. Hit the link for our YouTube channel, pick up your copy of the Lunatic Fringe book or The Accidental Stripper, and get a sneak peek at upcoming guests. Once again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.